0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, last Saturday, the Examiner published a fascinating story about a South Kerry brother and sister who were due to be sentenced over fraud-related offences in New York. Low Sullivan and his sister Helen could be facing long prison sentences as a result of a case that in some ways appeared to come out of nowhere against the highly successful family construction firm that has been involved in building some of the most prestigious buildings in the Big Apple. Their story is one in which a family from a remote part of this country went to the USA realised the American dream. But now, at least some of them, find themselves at the sharp end of America's pretty demanding criminal justice system. The piece which I'd highly recommend to everybody was written by Irish Examiner Deputy Property Editor Catherine Shanahan, who joins me now. Catherine, you're very welcome. Hi, Mike. Catherine, we get into the detail a bit later on, but just in broad terms, what is facing Donal and Helen O'Sullivan in terms of the sentencing that they're due to hear?
1: Well, right now, the sentencing is on foot of a criminal case that the government took against Donal principally, but Helen, his sister, who was involved in the payroll department in their construction company, Navalis, and a third man called Podrick Nocton, who was their financial controller. Essentially, in 2014, the unions took a civil case against Navalis for avoiding paying fringe benefits to unions. The construction jobs they would have been involved in would have been subject to collective bargaining agreements, which means the companies that get the jobs are obliged to pay what are called fringe benefits to union funds. And they would include things like pension payments, holiday pay, sick pay, that kind of thing. The uh, unions alleged that Navalis was using two front companies, alter ego companies, to avoid making these fringe payments using non-unionised workers instead on these jobs. And they sued Navalis. They were awarded £76 million by the judge who ruled in their favour and this was subsequently mediated down to £25 million after Navalis took out a Chapter 11 bankruptcy in order to really protect itself and um, saying it would restructure. But once it entered bankruptcy there was a fear that the unions might get nothing because they were unsecured creditors. That settlement was reached. It all seemed to be resolved then but uh, two years later, that was 2018, in 2020, Government uh, launched a criminal case and they were convicted on 11 counts, uh, which involved fraud and embezzlement and submitting false remittance reports to unions and that nature of thing.
0: So, I suppose in a nutshell, we're talking about a failure to pay uh, into union funds, various aspects of union funds, monies that should have been paid as a result of the employer employee relationship and what. Came out of that then.
1: That's it. And the two companies that were involved, the two front companies were Times Square Construction, which had been set up by Donald's brother in 2006. That would be Kevin O'Sullivan. Initially, they were joint owners with 50, 50 shares. Donald sold out to Kevin subsequently in 2012. The second company was founded by a former Navalist employee, uh, also a fellow Balance man, by the name of Owen Moriarty. And that company was called Advanced Contracting Solutions. And the links between Navalis and ACS and the links between Navalis and Times Square Construction were very much highlighted in the court. For instance, ACS's first mailing address was an apartment owned by Donald's wife. There was evidence, too, that ACS and Navalis shared important and expensive equipment under circumstances that the judge said indicated the companies were operating as one business, but working to disguise that connection. And she said also that ACS had incurred a one and a half million dollar loss on its first contract. It was a startup company, and that unless it was a part of the O'Sullivan construction empire, a startup like ACS would have gone under after such a fiasco. Those were the judge's words. And she said ACS was set up as and at all times was Navalis' alter ego. In relation to TSC, there were a couple of examples given in which instances it was used as a front company. One of them was called the Sugar Hill Project. For that, Navalis had bid, but their bid had been rejected. Subsequently, TSC, Times Square Construction, came in with a bid which matched 100% the final and best offer that had been made by Navalis. TSC got the contract, even though they didn't have the relevant expertise or equipment for the job. What they did have, though, was non-union workers, which is what the CEO of the company uh, behind the project wanted so the contract was given to Navalis, and the judge said Donal was the driving force in the negotiation of the contract between Tyne Square Construction and Sugarhill, that he took part in the conference calls. He was copied on nearly every email and that Tyne Square Construction's lawyers took instruction directly from him. She said she couldn't reasonably conclude on these facts that Tyne Square Construction had won the bid for Sugarhill on its own merits, independent of Navalis. She instead concluded that when Donal O'Sullivan learned the novelist bid would be rejected because it was a union-affiliated contract, he arranged for the contract to be awarded to his brother's firm at exactly the same price that Navalis had proposed in its best and final
0: offer. Yeah, and I think it's also fair to say that in the US, and there can be an awful lot of criticisms of the criminal justice system there in the broadest sense, but in terms of what we classify as white-collar crime, they take it very seriously indeed. And we'll just come back to some of... I, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Sullivans and through their company, Navalis were huge contributors to union funds in general as well, but that's neither here nor there. Navalis, as people may or may not have guessed, probably didn't just because you're listening rather than reading, is, of course, Sullivan, spelt backwards. Catherine, tell me about the beginnings of this family, where they came from and how they reached the kind of heights they did in the construction business in New York?
1: Sure. Well, they're from a place called Coombe the Glen, which is up the road from Ballinskelligs Bay, essentially. It's a stunningly beautiful uh, part of the country they lived in a bungalow up there with a couple of more siblings. Uh, their parents would have been Jack and Teresa Sullivan. And I suppose like a lot of other young Irish people around the same time in the 1980s, they left Ireland uh, at a time of high unemployment and headed for New York, where like, again, many generations before them, they ended up on the building sites. Um, Donald started out as a labourer on those sites. But three years later, himself and Kevin uh, set up Navalis. Tile, which was a small company at the outset, um, but built it up into a very successful business over the next 30 years or so, winning work on really significant contracts. I suppose one of the key ones would have been doing the concrete work for the 9-11 memorial at the World Trade Centre, which obviously would be something um, highly valued within New Yorkers' hearts. All the names of the people that were killed in 9-11 are commemorated at it. And it's a place where a lot of tourists go as well, just to remember what happened back in the day.
0: Yes. And as you said, they set up that company. They were very successful. I think it's fair to say they probably employed a lot of Irish people as a lot of these type of companies do. And they uh, got on very well. They also became, I think it's fair to say, kind of fabric of uh, the Irish community in New York and, and were pretty well regarded within it.
1: That's right. I mean, they had a reputation for looking after any of the boys or girls from home that came over, Um, you know, setting them up with jobs and looking after them when they came over. But they also had a good reputation for investing locally, uh, for being good Irish Americans, I suppose. So they would have been involved with the Irish Arts Centre. They would have been very involved with the um, Kerry GA teams in New York. In fact, they sponsored jersey in 2020. They may still even be sponsors, um, and they would have been involved in the Kerryman's Patriotic and Benevolent Fund. Like Donal, um, he he was recognised a good few times for the work that he did within the Irish-American community. For instance, at one stage, um, Irish America magazine, which ha- draws up an honours list every year, would have uh, recognised him as among the best and the brightest in terms of the contribution his company would have made and that he would have made to society, uh, giving back like a, a perfect example of an immigrant who gives back to the community that receives him. And he would have been, you know, had various awards. He was Grand Marshal for St. Patrick's Day Parade on another occasion. And he was also recognised um, in 2017 for his deeply charitable nature for getting very involved following Superstorm Sandy out in uh, Rockaway, where they sent out a team of corporate volunteers. They set up relief tents. They helped people rebuild homes. Uh, They did a lot of work down there. And then they would have helped out also after Hurricane Irma in Florida. So he was very well got, you could say, over there himself and his, his company.
0: Yes, and I think it's also fair to say that they invested back in, in their own area in South Kerry as well in particular. But also, the, the, there's a Cork connection as well there in terms of their investments.
1: That's right. Um, I suppose everybody knows they have the Cable O'Leary's premises down in Ballinskelligs and uh, Leonard, brother who had been in the States but came home in 1998. He runs the Ring of Kerry Hotel in Caharys Iveen. And then in Cork, you have the Irish subsidiary of Kevin's company which is now called um Tower Holdings Group and they put in a planning application about 2 years ago I'd say for what will be the tallest building in Ireland if it goes ahead which is a 34 story hotel and they're also in the process of building a 20 million euro glass office block in the city center near the bus station uh, the foundations of that were laid a couple of months back I haven't seen any activity on the site in recent weeks but spokespeople persons uh, for the company say that it is due to be completed in 2023. So, yeah, stuff ongoing and more in the pipeline.
0: Yeah, and uh, um, I've knowledge myself in terms of their their, uh, their presence back in South Kerry. You mentioned Cable O'Leary's Anybody who's been to Ban Skelligs will know of uh, that hotel. It's, it's, it's I have to say, it's fair to say it's pretty old now. But uh, there a few years ago, I actually wrote about it once in the Examiner there a few years ago. The O'Sullivans, or whichever one of them was in charge, they put in a planning application and they wanted to really increase the size of Cable O'Leary's, which, from an economic point of view, would have been very good for the local area. However, some people felt that, um, from a planning perspective, it was out of proportion with the landscape. And what eventually happened was Kerry County Council gave them the go-ahead But there were two objections and I think it might have even featured in national news at the time there was big local meetings of people who wanted it to go ahead and it then turned out that two objections, one was from a Summer House resident who, you know, arguably didn't have a stake in the area and the other, and I think it was uh, Radio Kerry uncovered this, was a phantom objector with an address out in Kinmare. But the outcome of all that was the matter went to Umbord Planola and onboard Planola decided against granting permission. Now, very often in those scenarios, you'll see a, a different application going in pretty soon after. That hasn't happened. And um, there's probably some disappointment about that. There might be valid reasons why it hasn't happened. But that was certainly a, a, a project that uh, didn't work out too well for them.
1: Yep. I mean, I, I actually did pay a trip down to ballons um, because um, I think you're aware the court granted permission for both Donal and Helen to travel home uh, more than once um, while while on bail. So I travelled down just to see if I could catch up with them. And I also spoke to local people down there. And, you know, the, the reception was was good. I mean, people have a lot of sympathy for them. They have a lot of respect for them. But a couple of people did say, yeah, they've bought up a good bit of stuff around here. We would have liked to have seen more done. And as you said, yes, it was an intrepid Radio Kerry reporter, I think, that tracked down that bogus objection to Cable O'Leary's. But while I was down there, people were saying, well, saying that it was closed for the winter. It's only It was only opening at four o'clock in the day during the summer. And they just felt, you know, I mean, you know the place. There's a magnificent view. It's a good setup. And they just felt more could be made of it. But maybe there's a lot more going on in the background at the moment. Maybe the appetite isn't there for it. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, and they also have another well again a well-known landmark to anybody who's been down that corner of the country. It's a former nuns' summer house. That's a very large building at one end of uh, the beach, um, which is a fascinating history in itself. Uh, There was a piece written recently about when the nuns originally went down there. the, The 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 bishop or um, certainly somebody behind the clergy uh, instructed them, they brought them down to the beach and showed them the first stream that ran down through the beach and said that in terms of them socialising outside the house they could go that far and no further. But they, the, the some of the family bought that recently and there was also talk that that might be uh, developed into something currently its housing as are so many accommodation provision centres at the moment, uh, a large, not a large group, but a, a, a group of uh, Ukrainians who have found themselves down there in a, a fantastic corner of the country, but I'm sure they'd prefer to be somewhere, as somebody once said, uh, great scenery, but you can't eat the scenery. Yeah. Anyway, um, that was their investments back home. And I'd I have to say something else as well in, in relation to that. They're the second kind of family from that part of the country who made it really big abroad before this there was the murphys who were just from in the road from where you described your sullivan's as origins and the murphys went to london and anybody who Would know London going back now, I suppose, to the 80s and 90s would be familiar with the Green and Grey Murphys. They were the two brothers, John and Joe. They had huge operations over there. They both featured individually and not necessarily peripherally, but to a certain extent in some of the tribunals that eventually emerged. But again, they were huge uh, providers of employment. They were very well regarded locally. And also, in terms of our companies, back in the 70s, they ran into issues in London that were not too dissimilar to what has happened to O'Sullivan's in New York. And um, in terms of what happened to uh, Murphy Firms then, um, as far as I know and as was related to me, a couple of uh, of their uh, executives or right-hand men or whatever took the rap and, 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 and uh, pleaded guilty to it and they spent a couple of years in prison where, among other things, they were well celebrated because they painted the whole place and they uh, brightened it up a small bit by all accounts. But that's just a a small bit of local stuff. Um, So we get to a scenario, Catherine, whereby it's discovered, presumably by the unions, that this was going on and the unions... The unions are basically looking, totally understandably under the circumstances, for a financial settlement. So that was... The civil action yeah. in relation to our problems.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that was 2014 that the unions instigated that lawsuit, and essentially uh, they won. So as I as I was saying, they were awarded a settlement of 76 million at the time, but that was reduced after the company went into bankruptcy in order to protect itself and to restructure. And that was reduced to just under 26 million, um, which the unions accepted, uh, I presume, because if they were unsecured creditors, it meant they could have lost out entirely. But also because the judge said at the time, like, you know, this is this company can't really afford to go under. It has huge projects. It has uh, a lot of people employed in New York. It's too big to fail, essentially. So that didn't happen. They they paid their dues. And actually, I spoke to the attorney that represented the unions at the time, Thomas Kennedy, who coincidentally happens to be grandparents are from County Kerry as well. I'll be in a different part in Ballyhigh. And he said really once they had um, paid up that the unions had no further beef with them. Uh, as far as they were concerned, they had settled their dues and, and that was that, it was kind of just get on with the business. But I think the government obviously took a different view. And I suppose what was interesting is the unions went after them for 76 million. The government went after them for around 1 million. But, you know, there's been the criminal action. The consequences are more serious. And what is being said now uh, from the States is that they could face jail terms of up to 20 years.
0: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. plushcare.com slash weightloss And as you say, at the same time they were allowed home after being found guilty while awaiting sentencing quite obviously there must be a high degree of trust that they would return.
1: Yes, well I mean they were on significant uh, bail bonds Donal was on uh, bail for $750,000 and Helen was on bail for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, so I suppose that's significant money. Um, they, you know, their lawyers gave various guarantees to the courts anyway that they would, you know, comply with any terms. Like they were, Helen was told to stay in her mother's house when she was home, and I, when I caught up with her, that's where she was. Um, you know, they were only going going to make things worse for themselves, I suppose, if they didn't comply. And the judge was generous enough to grant them the leave to travel home. Uh, they wanted to see an elderly parent and elderly relative. So, I mean, there wouldn't be much point in abusing those terms, really.
0: And while they're going through those obvious very serious travails, is the company still operating?
1: Oh, the company is, yes. Um, I mean, they stayed in place during the the civil case and all that. But then when the government came in in uh, 2020 with their case and they were arrested, I think it was July 2020 and like within days the three of them have ste- had stepped down from their roles, saying that they, you know, just wanted to cl- focus on clearing their names. Obviously, that didn't work out. Um, So the company has been run since by others. Um, It's still doing major contract work. If you look at its website, you can see, you know, there's plenty of prestige projects in there. So, I mean, like the judge would have pointed out in court as well and other people would have pointed out, you know, there was like Novelist was doing everything it should have been doing for a long time I think. Um, You were talking about the contributions it made to the unions I think between 2011 and 2017 during a time when it was accused of running um, a separate payroll scheme to to disguise certain payments. It was also making union contributions. I mean I've seen figures ranging from $145 million up to $200 million during that period. And the judge herself said like there was no evidence of any overt anti-union animus or anything like that. And she kind of recognised that um, some companies were being squeezed out fully from the residential um, construction trade because the commercial clients just wanted non-unionised workforces to keep things simpler for themselves. So, I mean, they did do a lot that was good. Navalis had a good reputation and it's not Navalis per se that has been charged. It's the man who founded it but who has stepped down from his role and his sister who is, you know, involved in that payroll scheme that came to the government's attention and Project Nocton, the man who had supervised the running of that scheme.
0: And in terms of conversations you've had or, or people who might have uh, sounded out, Catherine, you know yourself like in... Uh Certainly in this country, of course, in terms of white-collar crime, it's a different planet altogether. But, you know, there are scenarios whereby there are various uh, prison terms for particular offences, yet depending on circumstances, people could end up getting a a, a suspended sentence or a fine or something of that order. Is, Is the seriousness of this such that nobody is expecting that they might escape the prospect of going to prison?
1: Well... Again, some commentators that I spoke to in the States who are Irish-Americans themselves sort of said, like, it's not like Ireland. You know, they do throw the book at you here. Um, in Ireland, we, you know, you just don't see very many white-collar crimes, you know, ending up, people who carried out white-collar crimes ending up in court. I mean, you can think of obvious people yourself, probably, I don't want to name any names. But, yeah, yeah,
0: oh, for oh, a banking crisis and yeah, what Yeah, have yeah, it.
1: exactly. So, so like... It seems to be a different attitude over there. And I mean, the fact that the Department of Justice kind of sent out a press release after they were convicted saying they're facing 20 years, there was a lot of high-hitting agencies involved in this case, like the FBI were involved, Homeland Security were were involved, the Department of Labour was involved, Department of Justice, you know, people from the Port Authority spoke out about it saying, you know, we're not not taking this lightly. Um, and, And the fact that... There's nearly 350 letters of support gone in for Donal O'Sullivan to the courts. I presume it's a similar system to here where you can get people to write in character references, but he would have a huge network of uh, contacts, you know, having worked there for so long. So I would say that there's letters gone in from every angle, probably, you know, from within the Irish American community and possibly business contacts and all that. So... You know, it just, just depends on what the judge sees as mitigation or what she decides is a fair sentence, because at the end of the day, you know, while you can think, OK, they did build up a brilliant business, they provided so much employment, they did so much good construction work, you know, if you kind of go, kind of drill down into the the workers whose benefits weren't paid, it's not fair. And maybe American judges look at that a bit more harshly.
0: Absolutely, and, and there's a small bit of irony there in terms of overall when you think of the 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 gaps in terms of uh, what people, working class level, how they're treated in some aspects in the United States, but at least, and I, I think it's correct, uh, that unionised workforce have some basic standards. Um, I worked over there myself in the 80s in, in a, a, a labourers union, and I have to say the difference between that and I worked in a non-union union for a period as well, there's a world of difference between the two of them. And as you say, that is structured as it should be. Now, the two, Donald is 61, Helen is 62. Tough time of life to be facing into, um, into anything like that. But that, that's the way it stands at the moment. And he's a father
1: of five as well, with, you know, kids ranging in age from mid-teens up to mid-twenties. So that
0: is tough going. It is. It is. Um, it is an interesting element to it that this criminal case was taken as a result of what they did uh, in dealing with the unions, yet the unions, seem, the impression you seem to be getting, Catherine, is the unions are quite happy with the outcome that was there, but as you say, the, the, the criminal justice apparatus in the US operates, and there's a lot to be said for it, on a very different level. If they see something wrong, they're going to go after it for the sake of uh, of justice in relation to the state.
1: Yeah, again, what that union lawyer suggested to me was that, you know, I said, but why? I don't understand, you know, why, if the unions were happy, why this this separate case was taken? And he said, well, maybe there was a certain level of, and it's just his opinion, that maybe there was a certain level of embarrassment among the government that they hadn't, that they had just let the unions kind of do the work and hadn't done it themselves. Or maybe they just had a more Um, cut and dried case once the unions had kind of put a lot of the information out there Um, or maybe the fact that you know even while the civil lawsuit was ongoing the payroll system that Navalis was operating that system which kind of avoided making those union uh, fringe benefit payments was still continuing even while the civil case was underway so maybe that was a factor also
0: yeah, it's, it's a very interesting case. It was due originally to be decided this week, but now it looks very much like that's back. So it, it could be what, June or July before they, they finally hear the...
1: The end of June and they're not actually going to sentence all three defendants on the same day, even though that seems to have been the preference of Donal O'Sullivan as represented by his lawyer's letters to the judge. But a letter from Padraig Nocton's um, lawyers said the opposite really. He did not want to be sentenced on the same day. He just, just didn't want to be there to be any attempt to influence anything that was said in court or any anything that might be said on the day. So the the siblings are going to be sentenced together, and Podrick Nocton is going to be sentenced on a different day.
0: Well, that's interesting in itself because the severity yeah. seems to be different. Yet the siblings and Podrick Nocton is he from Ireland as well?
1: There isn't a whole lot of background information that I could find about him. But again, that attorney I was talking to said there's so many Irish involved in this case. Um, I mean, the chap Owen Moriarty that was involved in the separate front company, Kieran Lamb, and um, was an Irish man who ran that uh payroll scheme that landed them in trouble. Um, even if you look at some of the judges' names, the first judge was Colleen McMahon. So I'm guessing there's probably some some Irish relationship there. There's there's, there's a whole lot of Irish names that crop up in this case. Um, So, yeah, it's it's of interest to a lot of people here, I think.
0: Absolutely. And it's one we'll keep an eye on because it is a very interesting story. And as I say, one of the interesting aspects of it is how different uh, these matters are dealt with in the USA. And in general terms, you'd have to say fair play to them, even though other elements of their criminal justice system are so harsh, it's, uh, it's crazy. But um, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. Catherine, great story. I have to say, great research done into that. And Thanks. thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks. As I always, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Fernan. Thank you, folks, for listening. stay by the wall, don't do anything bad, and we'll talk to you again next week.